Welcome to Season 4 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership education, training, and development. Interested in keeping up with the leaders' conversations across the leadership discipline? Want to add more to your resource toolbox with practical strategies for teaching, learning, and program design without changing your routine? Well, this is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you don't never miss an episode. And welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And we are both thrilled for this episode of the podcast. We're joined today by Dr. Kristen Wren. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with the two of you. Well, it's wonderful to have you here today. I feel like we're all old friends and and we'll figure out maybe where we were really close to each other, but I feel like we were together just because we got some good energy here. Um, So as you know, we've shared with you, our podcast focuses on having really important conversations that help us be better professors, better leadership program administrators, better leaders in general. And in discussing some of the issues that um, Dan and I face, Uh, We also found that many of our colleagues face some of those same issues and just questions and just always looking to be better for our students. And so we started searching online because there were some spaces that we just weren't familiar with. And we said, there's got to be somebody out there that's researching, writing, leading um, in this space. And so... um, Chris, we found you on the on the line. Uh, I I love the movie, the internship, and they say on the line in this really funny bit. And so I crack up, crack up when I say it. But um, we searched online and found that you have this background in uh, higher education, college student learning, development and success. And specifically, you're looking at low income and first generation students and our LGBT plus student population. And we said, we have to have you on the show uh, because we want to have this conversation and kind of get a sense of what do we need to know? What's important out there? How can we help or contribute? And so that's kind of how we got to this space of recording today. Um, And so before you tell us all the things that we need to know, and we run and write them all down and make a list, you know, before we get get that going, um, I guess the first question we have is kind of, how did you get into teaching and doing research in higher education? So I think like a lot of people who teach uh, higher education or student affairs programs, um, which is what I do, uh, I had a really spectacular undergrad experience. I went to Mount Holyoke College, which is uh, a gender diverse, gender diverse women's college in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And I had a fantastic experience there. Um, I was involved on campus, I was a student leader. And so uh, I was a music major, um, I was deciding between uh, PhD in music history and um, going into student affairs administration, didn't have a lot of um, uh, strong mentoring into the student affairs. I had some strong mentors in student affairs, but they hadn't been to what I would call sort of very traditional student affairs programs as I now know about them at these sort of large Midwestern universities. And um, so I thought, well, let me, let me, uh, I will go get a master's um, in higher education or something like that and work in student activities, which is where I started. Um, so I started working student activities um, in area you do a lot of student development uh, and student leadership work in. Um, I uh, ended up at Brown University as assistant director of student activities and then became an assistant dean. Um, and I think the thread through all my work was thinking about identity conscious work with students um, and then also working with student leaders. Um, whether it was like kind of 
quote, traditional kind of uh, student government leaders or the leaders of other student organizations like a peer counseling program or a sexual sexuality educators program. So I did a lot of work with student leaders. At the same time, I started a PhD program at Boston College. So I was working at Brown, drive an hour north to Boston College for my PhD. And um, my, my dream was to get my PhD and then be the vice president of student affairs at Mount Holyoke. Like, obviously, um, that was what I was going to do. And um, along the way at BC, I learned more about what it would be like to be a, a higher education faculty member, a career I had never considered. The semester I was taking my first qualitative research class, um, I had a incredibly transformative moment with a, a group of students. So this was a women's peer counseling program. And uh, there had been an incident at Brown the previous semester, so in December of one year, that brought to the surface a lot of tensions around interracial dating. And the conversation I was then having several weeks later after winter break with these women peer counselors was as a group dedicated to thinking through with their peers questions of gender and sexuality and racism and anti-racism, how would this group take leadership with their peers in moving forward these conversations that have been very painful around interracial dating and why black women on campus were feeling the effects of racism and sexism. So we were having this conversation and while we're in this conversation about interracial dating and I'm taking this qualitative research class at the same time up at BC, um, one of the women in the group uh, sort of tears very quietly rolling down her face. And we sort of turned to her and said, what, what's going on? And she was one of the leaders of this group. And, um, and she said, well, something you all don't know about me, um, is that in fact, my parents, uh, my mom is white, my dad is black. And none of you know that about me because I don't have pictures of them up and I've never let them come to campus since they dropped, the day they dropped me off. Because I'm, she was also the president of the black women's organization on campus. Like she was like, you know, the, the big black woman on campus. Like she was like a student leader among black students as well. And she knew about this, ten, you know, she'd experienced this tension around interracial dating and that being a mixed race person. So at that moment, I had to pick a project for my college research class. And I said, you know, I'm really interested in the experience of biracial students. And that was sort of how that project started, but it was always wrapped up in issues of leadership. So here was the leader of the black women's organization on campus who felt like she had to experience and express her black identity in a very particular way, which was causing her a great deal of pain because she was hiding important parts of herself sort of not out as it were about that. And then she's also the leader of this women's student organization that's trying to take a role in these conversations. So this kind of moment, and we didn't use the words intersectionality at the time, um, but sort of seeing these forces come together in her life really had me continue to think through that. When I got to do this research project, uh, qualitative research, um, I interviewed several other people who were leaders of groups on campus, including a mixed race organization. But the university had one. Um, so it was a really exciting time for me to begin learning from my professional practice about really compelling questions in leadership development and student identities and identity conscious leadership. And that was kind of where it all came together for me. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be awesome if I could uh, become a professor who teaches, does research and teaches about these kinds of things all the time. And that was sort of what nudged me over into thinking about becoming a faculty person, always with the idea that um, if that didn't work out, I could just go be the vice president of student affairs someplace, like hopefully my alma mater. So that's kind of where it all came from um, and how I started down this path of uh, trying to understand the experiences of particularly student leaders and people who wanted to become student leaders. Oh, that's such an incredibly powerful story. Like as you share it, my heart kind of goes out to the student 
um, because it's it's like you know there's 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 two really strong identities at play, and you feel like as a part of this group you have to put, almost minimize one, uh, and in minimizing that you're minimizing like your parents and your family that you you know have this relationship with. I can only imagine what it was like for that student um, to to go through that, um, and it's it's so interesting you share that. I don't know what time frame that was, but I know when. I know that at a certain point, mixed race identity or biracial or, you know, all of the, the, I hate to say labels, but how we've been able to explain this, I know that didn't change until maybe the last 20 years. Like I remember at Temple, there wasn't a biracial selection until the census changed in 2000. So if you were biracial, you chose what identity you identified with. And most of those students didn't feel comfortable choosing white and they, or, and so they would choose black or kind of whatever that other identity was and, but didn't feel like they completely belonged in that space. So it's so interesting that that's kind of that critical moment that spurred your research. Um, Can I ask, like, how did you feel with your own identity kind of in this work, you know, and thinking about like your positionality and your research, like how, how did that show up for you? So I've also done um, a lot of research uh, on LGBTQ students, um, and I do identify um, in the queer community um, as a a white woman in the queer community of a certain generation. Um, So I have done both what I call like identity insider and identity outsider research. So I am monoracial and white. So I am not a person of color, but I'm also monoracial, which is different from being mixed race. So being mixed race is also different from being a monoracial person of color. So I am both monoracial and white. Um, and at the time I was doing the research, I was also uh, 10-ish years older than my participants of, of that group. Um, I'm now older. So I have insider outsider in different ways. So I think about um, the privilege we bring into research spaces when we are an outsider in a, um, a privileged group in relation to that group and what the obligations of that are. Um, it definitely, and I talk with students a lot about this, it, it is challenging in some ways. Um, it is an opportunity to um, take uh, humility and um, build self-awareness, I think, into one's kind of research. I also feel like there's sort of a time and a space when, um, like at the time I started doing this work, which was the, the late 1990s, um, there was not, there was very little research happening with, by, and for mixed race college students. There was a little bit um, by some really great mixed race scholars, but it was a time where using a bit of my privilege to, um, to uh, I avoid use of the phrase give voice to, but to say, I have an opportunity because of my, my sort of privilege as an academic researcher to bring these voices forward. And then five, 10 years later, working with, for example, Mark Johnston Guerrero, who's now at Ohio State, Mark Johnson is um, mixed race and has done amazing pathbreaking research in this area. And to think about how do I, as more people are coming up through and becoming researchers themselves, how do I begin to take the back seat? How do I then create, use my privilege you know, now as a tenure professor to create those opportunities for others? And that idea of not just mentoring people, but quote unquote sponsoring, right? So when are my opportunities? I get asked to write a chapter about mixed race college students. When do I say, you know, I'd love to do that but can I have a co-author? Or now, I'm like, I'd love to do that, but you know, Mark Johnson Guerrero really is doing that work brilliantly now, or Jessica Harris at UCLA. So how do we um, get out of the way? I think once there are other folks kind of in that venue. Um, so that I think it's been a big piece of it. And then 
when I'm on the inside doing insider research, although I would argue that um, when I study queer college students today, we, I'm entirely outside. I'm like, sure, we, we share pieces of our identity, but good heavens, um, there's sort of a joke among queer researchers that like, um, you know, uh, queer generations happen faster than other generations. Like they are like five years apart, you don't even have the same vocabulary. Um, so it's a really interesting quick turnover. So I'm several generations removed from what life of a you know 20 year old queer person is today. So I'm a little bit of an insider, but I'm I'm quite an outsider in that area as well these days. That's such an interesting perspective and and like the experience that, that you bring to your practice and, and to the research that you've you've conducted through through your career. I've I've just got a, a couple of things that, that I'd love to to explore with you. So so like you, I was deeply impacted by my undergraduate experience and how diverse the the student body was in all of its forms. It's the first time I it, the first time I had ever heard the acronym LGBT because there was an LGBTSU which was the student union at Florida State for lesbian gay by uh, bisexual transgender students and dove into the deep end and got involved in student government and Greek life and service clubs and, and you name it. And so, um, and, and I want to, I want to get to that in just, just a second, because the other thing that, that you commented on that I found really profound was this idea of while there are opportunities or, or privileges, as you name them, to engage in certain types of scholarship or be a voice of certain types of, of scholarship. There's also this opportunity to say, hey, you know, I have this colleague or what about other voices that could bring different perspectives to this experience? And one of the things that um, I wrote about recently that was published in the Journal of Leadership Education was this these experiences of, uh, of becoming and being a, um, a leadership educator. And when I conducted these interviews back in 2015, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, um, I did a snowball sample. I reached out to my network, said, hey, can you name me some leadership educators that, you've, that are exemplary? They are teaching academic courses because this was the population I was centering on. All of them were white, male and female, but white. And I write about this in the and I talk about white privilege and and whatnot. It was one of the first times I've kind of taken that that risk, and it was because of a colleague that I that I've worked with that <laughs> we use research teaches at a large public university in the southeast. Um, <laughs> you know, he really helped me to to kind of open my eyes and say, you need to write about this. This is important. You need to address this in in the paper. And it was a qualitative piece, and so I and so I could. And so it's because of that conversation. Not only that I that I write about it, but I think that. We're starting to see this influx of leadership educators that are from diverse backgrounds, which is so much more impactful for students learning, because not only is it the at the basic, most basic level, hey, I see someone who's teaching this that looks like me or has a similar experience than me. There's all these other impacts. And, and what, I'm, what I'm getting at is I had this experience in undergrad where, wow, I'm immersed in one of the most diverse campuses in, in the U.S., and I'm to me, I'm like, I'm gaining experience in ways that I can't even imagine. So when I had an opportunity to explore a topic for my master's thesis, I wanted to know, did, did other people have similar experience? That is, did students who were part of diverse student organizations feel like they had developed their leadership skills at a higher level than their peers? And so I literally surveyed, like, I don't know, I don't remember how many, seven or 800 or something, student leaders, by definition, it was were you on the board of some student organization in some university in Florida, <laughs> um, some public university, and surveyed them? And it turns out, yeah, they did feel that you know they self-assessed their their leadership higher. There was some correlation between how diverse their student organizations were and how they self-assessed their leadership skills. But I wish you know going back, you know, you're always like you know face bombing yourself when you think about the methodology of like your thesis or even your dissertation uh, when you get a little bit farther out. And so I'm curious 
um, what I want to ask you about that after um, providing way too much context is <laughs> what are your thoughts on these, this intersection of like identity and these experiences being around diverse peers and diversity in all its forms? How did, how do you feel and what have you learned about how that impacts um, students' development and students' leadership development? So I think about um, leadership development for people who are minoritized along any aspect of identity, I think about it in two categories. One is um, uh, leadership within identity-based or identity-conscious organizations. So what is it like to be a Black student leading the Black Student Union or a queer student leading the queer student union? Um, and I think about what does it mean to be the black student who is elected president of the campus-wide student government, or the queer student who is a senator on SGA or residence hall association or whatever that would be. So thinking about it, because I feel like we need both, right? Like when I think about the world, like, yes, I want Kamala Harris to be my vice president. And I want a super talented African-American, person leading the NAACP, right? Which is essentially, not entirely, but mainly made up of people who identify as black, right? So I want both because I think to get social change, we need expert leaders uh, who come from minoritized backgrounds in leading their communities for change and leading within um, mainstream. I, I don't know what the word is there. I don't wanna, mainstream makes everything else seem not mainstream. So, um, but leading with this sort of general population, you know, government, civic, business, all the things, education. So I want, you know, I want that lesbian president of Ohio State, which actually there is one right now, right? So I want her and I want um, uh, African-American colleagues leading HBCUs because of the possibility models that creates for their students. So I want all the things, right? And I want majoritized students joining or allying with groups for and by students of color or LGBT identity conscious groups. But I also want the majority of students, and this actually sounds like your experience, Dan, in student government or Greek life or kind of wherever that would be to be interacting with really diverse other groups of people, right? So I, I want it all. Um, and when I think about sort of how we do that in leadership education. There's actually there's some research that shows, you know, some students kind of lead in their identity conscious or identity-based organizations. That's their springboard into uh, maybe the student government or something else. Um, other students kind of use the identity conscious spaces as sort of their platform throughout their student career. Um, and thinking about how do we create kind of porous boundaries there, where as leadership educators and then working with student leaders, how do we think about making sure all students recognize that they can go back and forth in that? It's, it should be porous. We should be creating um, opportunities to kind of do both and to learn in both settings and then sort of building out capacity for more people to do those kinds of things. Um, so that I think is, uh, when I think about sort of identity conscious and identity-based leadership, like, yes, I want you doing that within your community and for those who want to, I really want you to be ready to take that kind of big next step. Um, I feel like as somebody who went to a, a women's college, the, the critique you used to get for that um, was like, well, you won't know how to act in the real world. Um, and there's still some of that around attending HBCUs for some students like, well, you'll be coddled in this bubble of protection. Now, that is a ridiculous idea. We all know those things don't happen. But 
some of that also happens to student organizations, I think. We're like, well, you know, if you quote, just stay with the queer student union, or if you just stay with the Latina student group, will you be really ready to be a leader when you have to like, you know, mix it up with people who are different from you? Um, and I feel pretty strongly that like the resilience and the sense of self and the confidence and the skills you gain in identity conscious and identity-based communities are critical, but also the work of leaders in those organizations is critical for moving us forward in a social justice way. So I'm definitely of the like, yes, you should be doing this work in your identity conscious communities and we should not be pushing you out of that um, or pigeonholing you into it. Love that. Yeah, no, I feel like I've just learned a lot too. Um, re reflecting on, gosh, the, I mean, the college experience, which I know you've written a lot about as well, and how that experience contributes to you know to the development of students, um, not just you know as students, but as 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 individuals, as, as citizens, and and I I feel oftentimes we we may take for granted those experiences that we had of just you know plunged into you know again it depends on where you went to, to college or or university or what have you whether or not you were around so many people that did not look like you or did not come from somewhere that 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 you came from and how much that will that can serve you well if you do choose to continue that path I think it depends I don't think it matters whether you then go to a similarly diverse place or if you go back to a uh, a place that is not so diverse i mean one of the experiences that I, that I often talk about with with my peers and with my students is you know i grew up in tampa which continues to be increasingly be more diverse um and it was fairly diverse growing up tallahassee or florida state in particular was extremely diverse at, at that point in time now i live 20 miles north of portland maine maine is the second whitest state thanks to vermont um <laughs> you know our friends <laughs> our friends to the west and um that is something that outside of the greater portland area there is not much diversity so i do have a lot of students that while we're having conversations about dei issues and and, and trying to expand our worldview and while we may have international students or we may have students identify you know as LGBT or plus or what have you, we don't have, although it's increasing the, some of the, the ethnic and, and, and uh, cultural diversity that, that we could, and that contributes to some mystery around, well, how do we actually uh, engage in that type of experience or have a conversation that feels really meaningful or that can help students to really make some, make some connect, you know, I'm thinking about like educational psychology, like we're triggered, you know, we're firing neurons, we're making literal connections in the brain. When I have this opportunity, I've increased my cultural intelligence or I've, or I don't make a mistake of saying the wrong thing, or I don't, you know, mistake the, you know, my intent for my impact of what I might say or, or things of that nature. And so it's, I don't know if it's more of a comment that, that you know, than a question, but well, just let me, I, let me, yeah, let me jump ahead, in because you said yeah. something that's so meaningful. Uh, and, and it makes me think about the new conversation that's happening where we're moving past surface level diversity and into deep diversity. And so like with my students, when we start having that conversation, they immediately, and even though we're, uh, I am at a diverse institution, we used to be diversity university, they immediately jump into black and white. And it's this, we now have this opportunity to get past, you know, like the big six, where we're looking at race, gender, religion, and we're looking into seniority and in-state and out-of-state and um, all of these different things that they don't necessarily feel like contribute to their experience. So in my leading groups class, when I when we get to that space, we're in like week seven or eight, when we start talking about diversity, because they've built enough of a community where they can be open. And, you know, I ask them, I, I say, like, describe your the diversity in your group, and have some overlap, 
you know, have some, some differences, but describe it. And then I put like the diversity wheel up, or I put this list of um, physical and psychological diversity, and they don't even realize that there's different types and different ways to catalog diversity. And it's this, it's, it's really, they've, my students have heard the term and, and know like the trigger uh, phrases and cliches that come along with it. But when you start showing them some, some facts and some data, it's like mind blowing because then they are, they're less fearful of the mistakes that they can make. And they're just more caught up with, okay, so now I have more ways that I can identify and it's not just gender. And I'm not as a white person, just being told, you know, whatever about, you know, um, how, you know, white people are. But like there, it's those things that they hear regularly, they now have kind of more categories to look at. And so it's, it's, I know it's changed my teaching because I, I used to go with just kind of strictly what was in the book, but now it's really like, let's have a conversation about that surface versus deep level. And now the world is kind of having that conversation. So they're seeing that portrayed in the media and it, it's a different kind of conversation. So um, I love it. And I feel like now it's like, okay, like everybody's talking about this. You said something, Lauren, about um, sort of students seeing things in media and the conversations that are happening there. And I think that that is a place where um, media, digital media, social media, you know, the explosion in my uh, career as a researcher of digital spaces, right? So I started, uh, you know, I started as a faculty member in 1999. Um, Some of your listeners and some of the two of you, but like, we didn't really have the web then. We sort of had the web, but we really didn't have the web. We didn't um, really have the web. <laughs> it's like, you could, you, you, there, there, I remember like, oh, there's going to be video, but it would like, like take seven minutes to download a 15 second little cartoon thing. Kind of thing. Um, it was back in the days when you couldn't actually share uh, a Word document across Mac and PC and you couldn't have two things open anyway. So that was the day. Um, so we didn't really have kind of social media. But I think about, particularly in communities, I've done a lot of research with the students, so mixed race, multiracial students, and also um, queer students, the availability of thinking about identities through digital media, both through um, who you can have as possibility models, how you make connections, the ways that you think about who you are and your own identities, and I feel like students now sort of have these whole venues that never existed before. And I think we've gotten past the days of the arguments about like, well, is your online identity your real identity? Because that was an actual conversation for quite a while. Um, and and student affairs professionals and educators were very concerned about this uh, in a bad way. Um, I think we've gotten past most of that. I think as more student affairs professionals themselves have like lived in that world. But I feel like that interplay between how we are online, what we read online, and then how we act and interact in in in-person leadership settings, but then also how we lead virtually um, and not just sort of counting pandemic time and thinking about how student organizations have kept going in these things, but the ways that even uh, with my fingers crossed, I will say post pandemic, um, if there ever is that thing, but like when we are more back to place-based learning on campuses, let me say it that way, thinking about the ways that students explore identities, commit to identities, try things out in digital spaces, and then can bring that back into their uh, uh, real-time perhaps interactions or asynchronous interactions with peers in leadership settings, and then how that feeds back out to the other parts of their lives. Like I've thought about um, one of the pieces I've written um, 
around identity conscious student leadership and identity-based organizations, like a student who's like, well, you know, um, this was a women of color organization. And she's like, well, you know, I, I know it's not right for people to sort of turn to me and be like, well, as a woman of color, what do you think women of color think? Right? She's like, I know that's not cool, like in a class or whatever, but I'm the president of the women of color student organization. So in fact, there are times in my day when I am supposed to speak for women of color because that's my job to represent them. And I've had queer students say the same thing, like trans students be like, you know, no, I don't want to speak for all the trans people all the time. But when the student paper is asking me about Trans Day of Remembrance, it turns out it is my job to talk about being trans. So it's a really interesting um, what students are sort of getting from online context, exploring their identities there, and then as leaders of identity-based groups, um, choosing to be in positions where they have to articulate an identity in a different kind of way, um, created what one student sort of called like this reinforcing cycle of like, identification. Like I get to explore my identity and then kind of express it and then kind of re-explore it and express it in these kinds of loops, which could sometimes go very badly, right? Like the comment section after the Trans Day of Remembers article in the student paper can go very badly um, and quite um, violent. Uh, on the other hand, there's also this feedback loop of positivity that can happen as well. So I think about those kinds of spaces for identity conscious leaders that are different um, and that put them in positions that no, I never want a student to have to answer for all the women of color. But when she takes that up as her, as part of her identity and her job to be the leader of that group, I'm like, okay, what does it mean to speak in that way? Um, and seeing the kind of identity reinforcement exploration that happens in that loop is really interesting to me. I think I would love to see that loop overlap with dialogic theory, where it talks about how to use communication to build relationships, right? And because I think about, like you just talked about the, the comment section and having the open loop technically is better for whoever is hosting it. So for the newspaper, it's better for them to have an open loop because they get transparency and and, and it's a way to build relationships with their followers. However, I, I wonder what the, the overlap is when you think about the negative comments that are happening in that space and how harmful they can be um, and, and almost do the exact opposite of what like dialogic theory tells us about that. I don't know if anybody needs a dissertation topic, but that feels like a really good, meaningful piece of work to contribute to, to our space. Now, that's so that's so incredibly interesting. And I, I also like how you shared this, this, the duality of that young woman's role where she was like, well, I identify as a woman of color, but I also am the president of this organization. And so maybe it's okay for me to lean in and offer my perspective. Um, but I also think now we're getting away from that monolith of everybody, meaning we can't look at all white people the same. We can't look at all of our LGBT plus friends the same. And, and I don't think people, I say this all the time to my husband, like we can hold two things. I don't think people are really conditioned for holding both of those two things, right? But if, if that's what we as faculty are teaching our students, can we have these uh, complex conversations, thoughts, approaches, then I feel like then we're doing a, a more good. Maybe that's what our leadership edu educators should be doing. Like, how are we teaching our students to kind of hold on to these multiple components and really think through what's best in that moment? I was playing what you're just saying, Lauren, against the holding two things against what um, the media cycle wants, because the media cycle thrives on people taking one thing and running with it, right? And mm -hmm. holding to their one um, and being polarized and extreme. And so how do we help particularly student leaders, but how do we help leaders not just learn to hold the two things for themselves, but then help them leading others into that possibility. And that sounds like 
really hard work, right? To ask of leaders in general, like how can I ask you as a leader to really um, embrace the both and, and try to get the people you're leading to embrace it. Um, yeah. When there's so much force coming at us around, take a side, win, don't listen. You can only have one and you got to win, you know, be right yeah. all the time. Well, I think it's, it's this, like, how do we create psychological safety, but also then prepare people to be resilient. And I think that's the challenge, I, you know, and, and I, I, I feel like I'm a, well, I'm a zennial, but uh, technically I'm a millennial. And I feel like we were the, the super protectors of the people, the children that we raised, we wanted to shield them from everything outside and protect them. And I think now we're kind of seeing how that may not have been the best thing ever to do. Um, but I also then think about the next generation, like my son, I have a nine-year-old and a 20-year-old. My nine-year-old is tough as nails and I think he's ready. And, and I, 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 truly believe though, at the end of all of this, um, our student, like my students, they can't change a tire, but they can change the world. And so maybe it's just like us having the courage to trust and put it out there for them to make meaning of it instead of kind of trying to continue to protect or shield or coach, you know, and, and maybe it's just kind of, Hey, this is what reality is. And you have the power to change it you got to figure out what it looks like. There's, um, is it unanimity? What's the equanimity where there's multiple ways to get to this? You got to figure out the path. I, I can, can only get you so far. Sorry, Jen. I know you keep jumping in and wanting to say <laughs> something. No, I'm loving the, the conversation. I was going to, I was going to ask um, Chris, if, if you had any uh, maybe strategies or techniques for approaching some of those topics. You've got students that are holding some of these identities. And then simultaneously, we're asking not only students that are, well, everybody's holding sometimes all, all kinds of identities. Um, how are they, what are some strategies for approaching topics that are complex with students that are not only holding these, these identities, but they're also holding these two things, whatever these two things are, you know, fill in the blank. How have you, and I guess specifically for like leadership educators, you know, what are some strategies or, or techniques that you found to be successful or effective, particularly as we're going into thinking about this, our summer classes and certainly thinking ahead to the fall, uh, who knows how we'll be back, but things are only getting more getting more complex and, and, and rest is, is, is consistent and sustained in our, in our world. And certainly in the U S today. Now that there was ever a time when post-secondary educators uh, could, uh, I think what I want to say is sort of fool students. Um, I, I think students could often sort of see what was really going on. Um, if there was ever that time, and I, I can't remember that there was, um, it is certainly no longer the case. I mean, the ability for um, tons of misinformation to circulate, absolutely, but also lots of information, right? So the, the task has gone from uh, protecting or shielding students in some ways and sort of selective, like I remember as a master's student in 1986, um, working on leadership education uh, at Boston University. And, um, you know, the, we, we felt like we could selectively introduce ideas to students, like kind of at our pace, like you would have a curriculum for leadership education, you would sort of dole out the, okay, now this week, we're going to deal with this kind of a dilemma, and we're going to do a case study on this, what would you do if this kind of thing happened to your student group? I think that if that ever actually was working, um, it certainly isn't working any longer, um, because the world is coming at people pretty fast, right? So I think it's a shifting to helping students, student leaders who are learning to be leaders or leader, the uh, Students, students of leadership education, I think helping them um, uh, prioritize what to learn when, um, 
when I'm with, particularly now a master's student or student affairs master's program, the world's come at them very fast. They're overwhelmed with things. Part of that first task is to prioritize which of those things to address and learn first. Um, one student said to me, I feel like um, everything is a monster and everything is huge. I know that some of them aren't monsters and some of them are smaller than others and some are farther away, but right now it all looks very big right in front of me and I can't figure out which monster to fight off first. Um, I was like, okay, that sounds like you're pretty overwhelmed, right? But then thinking about you know, these folks becoming new professionals in a few years and then maybe they'll become parents or they'll be, they'll be working with their own parents and things will be overwhelming. There's always these new things to be learning in our lives as humans and caretakers and workers um, and students. So how do we help people learn to make that priority? Because I think that we can no longer assume that whatever I've put in front of them, because that was my syllabus for the week, um, is the thing that they're focused on or the only thing they're focused on. So how do I help you as a student uh, maybe triage, diagnose, understand what's coming at me, which are the big and immediate things? Um, what does that sort of matrix or grid people make of like one axis would be uh, how urgent is something, like how urgent, but the other axis is how important is it? And as leaders, we often end up dealing with the urgent or what other people consider urgent, um, even if it's not important. And we sometimes don't get to the really important things that are less urgent. Like it's not on fire, but boy, if we don't do that part of the work, that's really important work to be doing. And some of that is our self-work, I think, around diversity and equity and sort of that kind of self-work. Most days I don't have a direct emergency related to that, but boy, if I don't keep doing that work, um, I will find myself in a difficult position. So how do we help people see what's in front of them and then begin sorting it and create space for the important, but maybe less hair on fire at the moment mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah, I feel like you've given me a new lens to continue to emphasize or to emphasize in another way why reflection in leadership learning is so important because it does help students to, to get down to those, to use your, your, your phrasing, Lauren, the, you know, get from the surface to the deep level, when, and not just about diversity, but about all, all that ails you, you know, as, the, as they say. And it is through that work that students are making meaning are, but it needs to not only happen in reflection, it needs to happen in like, what's that extension of reflection? And I think that's where we've got this, I don't want to call it a holy grail, but I want to call it an opportunity for us to continue that conversation of, okay, now you've reflected on all on these, on these, on this complexity of, of, of issues and things that, that you're grappling with. You're, you're working with this group. You're, you're trying to convince this group. You're, you know, it's not just case studies. It's your own case scenarios. It's the, it's your own dilemmas. It's the decision-making patterns and processes that, that you're going through. And, and how do we, how do we get from that to something that's, 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 that's more effective, more beneficial and, and promotes and, and moves that needle of, of leadership learning. You know, students love activities that are like, you know, the solve my problem activities, or there's an activity I borrowed from a professor emeritus that used to teach a class that now I teach regularly, where you pair up a student with another student for the course of a semester. And basically you ask them to describe like a leadership fail that they had. And then they get advice from the, from the rest of the students in the class and a, through a discussion board or through a, a and or a, 
a psychologically safe uh, forum of some type. Oftentimes they can decide, you know, does the whole class see this? Do you change the names to protect the innocent? What have you? And then their partner will synthesize all the advice from the rest of the students and kind of present that to them towards the end of the semester. And students always say, I love that. That was so personal. That was so helpful. This was something that I've been grappling with or dealing with, or that I've been wearing a, you know, I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> I've been wearing a scarlet letter about for my, my, my leadership, my, a scarlet L, let's call it, you know, for leadership fail for, for, for whatever amount of time. And, and while wow, that was helpful to help me work through that. So it's, but, but we, those opportunities, I think are few and far between. And, and I think that there's some, there are some opportunities for us to take that hard self-work and, and to, and to extend it into some even more, you know, creative types of, of leadership learning. So love, yeah, love what you shared, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. That, that's, I think that's helpful and certainly helpful for, for some of the, some of our listeners to, as they ideate some of the assignments they might include in their courses and workshops coming up here in the future. I'll jump into, we have one last question, Chris, that I'm going to ask in a minute, but I love that, that Dan shared that. Um, so a colleague of mine said, you know, when, when students were really frustrated with Zoom, she gave them this assignment, like get off Zoom and just ask your aunt or your sister or your friend and, and just talk to them about, you know, X prompt related to the class. And it makes me think about um, how meaningful she shared that the activity was for her students because it wasn't another Zoom lecture, it wasn't another YouTube video, it wasn't another reading, it was an opportunity for them to genuinely express what they think to someone who they perceive knew them incredibly well. And I often feel like we don't ask the, we don't assign those things enough. You know, I started asking a question. We put in a new student feedback form, great timing in the middle of the pandemic. We put it in a whole new system. And one of the questions that was eligible was, uh, are you talking to your friends and family about what you're learning? And I felt that that was such a meaningful question. And so I asked, I asked it, put it in my um, student feedback form. And then I asked the question in class and one of the students, her mom jumped on Zoom and says, I've been listening to you the whole semester. And I'm like rolling because that thought hadn't occurred to me. But she said, you know, like, I love the way you approach them in class and, and I've been enjoying it, you know, and I, and I was like, well, you should have jumped in with some leadership thoughts, you know, you could have shared, you know, just as, but, but I feel like those are the things that we don't take advantage of that can take, that can be so meaningful, especially when we're in this space where not everybody agrees with our politics, our religion, our beliefs, right? And so I feel like it's just like another tool that we can toss in there um, to encourage students because they want to learn and they want to do this work, but um, sometimes they're just fearful of doing this. So that's all I had to say before I ask. Chris, is there anything that you wanted to share that maybe you didn't share or we didn't ask that you feel would be meaningful as we close out this episode? I would say, listen to the stories you've each shared some and then my own experience of sort of how I started doing uh, research on identity-based, identity-conscious student leaders in addition to actually that being my professional practice. Um, I think that we, um, and actually connects to a little bit to the story of the mom popping on the Zoom. I feel like we we maybe don't keep ourselves open quite enough to the role of serendipity in learning. The chance encounter, the time you said yes to something that was a little bit scary, the person who popped on the Zoom who you weren't expecting. Um, I think that serendipity um, is really important to pay a little bit of attention to and listen to and look for as leaders, as educators, um, sort of as people in and around higher education, like 
what's the thing you're not expecting? And, and just keep your eyes open in case it happens to you and maybe follow it a little ways and see where it takes you. Um, I feel like that we, we don't give quite enough play to that idea. Love that. Yeah. Who knows who you might, who you might run into and, and what chance conversation you might have that, that opens some door and, and, and changes your worldview here or there. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Chris, again, thank you so much for, for taking time to uh, out of your day to, to join us. It really was a pleasure. And I, and I've got so much to think about and to, and to write about and to, and to ideate as I think about some of the classes that I'm going to, um, that I'm teaching this summer and fall as well. And this wraps up our episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. Um, best of luck to, to you and to our listeners as they close out the rest of their academic year. We would love for you to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. That's Dr. Underscore Leadership, and uh, Lauren is at M R S L A U R J B. That's Mrs. Laura J B. Um, and you can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. And we also encourage you to subscribe and rate us five stars. As the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd also like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The Support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in New Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and educator. And he's currently an associate professor of trumpet, coordinator of jazz and commercial music, and director of ensembles at Coastal Carolina University. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thanks so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, thank you to the Association of Leadership Educators. Check out what ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you'll listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts.